glory of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to the book of James. James chapter 1. This is a message I have entitled, The Truth About Trials. James chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 4, but our primary emphasis, verses 2 through 4. James chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 4. James, a bondservant, a doulos in the Greek, a, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. May God bless the reading of his word. First, a, a couple of points I'd like to bring to your attention before we get into the trials aspect of this. Notice how James opens his letter. He says, it, he says I am James, a, as I said, a doulos, a, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is really telling, I think, for us when you consider who James was. James was the half-brother of Jesus. And, of course, we refer to him as the half-brother of Jesus because Jesus was conceived of a virgin. And uh, so, but after Jesus was born, much to the consternation of the Roman Catholic Church, that we'll talk about, Lord willing, tomorrow night, uh, Mary and Joseph did indeed have other children the old-fashioned way. And so we refer to James as the half-brother of Jesus. And, and notice how he refers to himself. I mean, if, if you're writing a letter... And, and you're wanting to gain some credibility, what better cred could you have than, hey, I'm, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. I mean, I, I was raised with him. No, he doesn't refer to himself that way. He says, I am the slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James does not appeal to his familial relationship with Jesus. And that's especially interesting when you remember the fact that initially Jesus' siblings, James included, did not believe him. They thought he was crazy. It wasn't until after his resurrection that James and his other siblings came to a true knowledge of who Christ was. James doesn't appeal to his familiar relationship with Christ. He says, I am the slave of God. And of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is true humility. That is humility that is engendered only by a, being in a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus. James understood that his most important relationship with Christ was not as his familial half-brother. It was as his slave of the Lord Jesus. True humility. To the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, I want us to look at five aspects of trials in this text. Number one, we're going to look at the preponderance of trials. Then we're going to look at the meaning of trials. Then we're going to look at the purpose of trials. Then we will look at our response to trials. 
And finally, the fruit of trials. So preponderance, meaning, purpose, our response, and then the fruit if you're taking notes. Notice what James says. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Not if, but when. Life is marked by trials, is it not? It is marked by times of tears and pain. Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, Jesus says, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Every single day we're going to encounter at least a little bit of trouble somewhere. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, In this world you will have trouble. Job chapter 5, verse 7, for man who is born for man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. And so just as naturally as when you when you stoke a fire and the sparks fly upward, just as naturally as that happens, so are times of trials and pain in our lives. The fallen state of this world just naturally creates trials, times of trouble, times of pain. Job chapter 14, verse 1, Job says, Man who is born of woman, that's pretty much all of us, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of trouble. You won't see that verse on the front of a Hallmark card anytime soon. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says that the married will have trouble. Uh, in marriage, there will be trouble. You put two sinners under the same roof, and from time to time, inevitably, there's going to be a little bit of trouble somewhere. The Apostle Paul was troubled. Flip over, if you will, quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church of Corinth, says this. He says, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. Now watch this list. In far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Do the math on that. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all of the churches. Other than that, everything was going great. The Apostle Paul was troubled. He had trials. And Jesus himself, John chapter 11, Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus. And then, of course, right before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was so troubled, he sweated drops of blood. If Jesus suffered, if Jesus went through trials, you and I will. It is an argument from the greater to the lesser. The servant is not above his master. If Jesus suffered trials, dear ones, you and I will as well. Trials are inevitable. And also trials are varied. 
James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Trials come in all shapes and sizes. We have trials in our health, as our brother Vody Balkum is going through right now. We have trials in our health. We have trials in our finances. We have trials of persecution. And granted, we don't live in Iran or North Korea or a country like that, at least not yet. But uh, we should be experiencing some soft persecution, at least somewhere. And oftentimes, uh, that will come from members of our own family, will it not? I'm sure many of you could, if I asked, if when you came to Christ, did it cause uh, alienation of affection within your own family? Did you suffer some persecution, uh, an alienation of that relationship from members of your own family? I would imagine many hands in this room would go up. And Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And enemies will be members of our own household. And so trials are inevitable, and they come in many different forms. The preponderance of trials. Now I want us to look at the meaning of trials. The meaning of trials. What do they mean? Many people think that misfortune should only come to ungodly people. Any, even many people who profess to be Christians. Unfortunate uh, misfortune should only come to ungodly people. Remember in Psalm chapter 73, Asaph, this was a psalm written by Asaph. And if you've never spent much time in Psalm 73, I would encourage you to do so. It's a beautiful text of scripture. But Asaph saw the prosperity of the wicked. He saw wicked people prospering and he saw the righteous suffering. And it vexed him. It troubled him greatly. It's, he said, it was so vexing that my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Asaph did not understand why the wicked seemed to prosper and the righteous seemed to suffer. Many people ask the age-old question, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And I would think most of us in this church would probably understand that that is the wrong question. Because there is no such thing as a good person. All of us are bad people. There is only one who is good, and that is God. And so the question is not, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? The question that we should ponder is, why does God cause good things to happen to bad people? But dear ones, oftentimes our suffering, our trials, are not in spite of our faithfulness to God, but because of our faithfulness to God. Job was upright, blameless. He feared God and he shunned evil, and yet Job suffered like no man save for Christ himself ever did suffer. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, was stoned for his faith in Christ. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, a very tender scene as Jesus stood right before Stephen was stoned, as if to get ready to welcome him into heaven. Stephen was stoned. The apostles were all martyred for their faith. Peter, we think, was crucified upside down. Paul had his head chopped off. What is it? I often wonder, what is it in the life of the apostles that make us think that we are entitled to have our best life now? I mean, what is it that, that these, these people are reading in the New Testament that think they are entitled to have a cushy life? 
Joel Osteen writes that book, Your Best Life Now, where he talks about how the favor of God was one time when he and his wife found a good parking spot at the mall. That is unbelievable. That is a profound misunderstanding of the gospel. This man has no understanding of the gospel of Christ. And so many people who profess to be believers have absolutely no understanding of the gospel. And it's not that these people don't know what's in the Bible. It's not that Joel Osteen doesn't know. He does know what's in the Bible. He just refuses to preach it. And these people who preach a health and wealth gospel that we should be having our best life now. These folks hate God. They hate God. Joel Osteen hates God. He has created a God after his own image. He hates the God of the Bible. What is it in the lives of the apostles that make us think we are entitled to have a cushy life? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Dear ones, if you have responded to a painless gospel, you have responded to a false gospel. The gospel is free. Salvation is free, but discipleship is not. Discipleship will cost you. Oftentimes trials are because of our faith, not in spite of our faith. John 15, verse 20, Jesus says, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Again, an argument from the greater to the lesser. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Paul says, All who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It does not say most, it says all. And there are no exception clauses to that unless you live in the United States of America. If you have never experienced at least some soft persecution somewhere because of your faith, then you're not living godly in Christ Jesus. Now I want us to look at the purpose of trials. The purpose of trials. Number one, trials serve to engender in us humility. Humility. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, Paul says... Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. What revelations? Paul had been caught up into the third heaven. And he heard inexpressible words that man is not permitted to speak. And Paul says, because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. To keep him from exalting himself. This thorn in the flesh, and the better way to render that, in the Greek it's scallops, it's, it's, it's better rendered as stake. This was not some minor irritants to the Apostle Paul. This was something that vexed him greatly. Because of this thorn in the flesh, it was, Paul says it was given to him to keep him from exalting himself. And dear friends, this is the man who wrote you know, roughly a third of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul struggled with pride. And if the Apostle Paul struggled with pride, the author of Romans and First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, all the pastoral epistles, if he struggled with pride, you and I will struggle with pride too. None of us is without pride. None of us is. And there is nothing that you and I do with 100% pure motives. Did you know that? 
There's nothing that you and I do with 100% pure motives, motives. And I understand, because I understand this theologically, that even as I am up here right now preaching to you this morning, this very instant, even what I'm doing right now, I know that I'm not doing it with 100% pure motives. Now, I do my best to Romans 8.13, put to death the deeds of the flesh, but none of us is without pride. And there is nothing like a good trial to bring us to our knees and to engender in us real godly humility. There was a missionary to India in the last like last 25 years of the 1800s, first 25 years or so of the 1900s, named Amy Carmichael. And Amy Carmichael wrote a poem entitled, Hast Thou No Scar? I want to read this to you. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. In other words, I, I hear people singing your praises. I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent. Leaned me against a tree to die and rent. By ravening beasts that compass me I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be. And pierced are the feet that leadeth me, but thine are whole. Can he have traveled far, who hast no wound, who hast no scar? If you belong to Christ, you will have scars. You will go through trials. And these trials serve to engender in us real godly humility. Real godly humility. Also, trials serve to conform us into the image of Christ. Our conformation into the image of Christ. Romans 8, 28, a verse we know well. And we know that God, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Now, notice what this verse does not say. Romans 8.28 does not say that all things are good. It's not what it says. Because, dear ones, all things are not good. All things aren't good. It's not good when someone is maimed in a car accident. That's not a good thing. It's not, a, it's not good when a, a child gets cancer. These are not good things in and of themselves. But God in his good and kind providence works out all of these things that are not good. He works them all out together for the good. To conform us more and more into the image of Christ. Trials conform us into his image. Psalm chapter 119 verse 71. David said it is good for me. That I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The affliction in and of itself was not good, but it was good for him that he was afflicted. 
because these afflictions helped David to learn the statutes of God. And this was not talking about David just giving David, you know, some, some time to catch up on his reading. No, there is something about going through a trial, a real affliction, that helps us to know God in an experiential way. His word that we are hopefully uh, saturating our minds with, when we go through a trial, that word that we have in our mind becomes very real and we learn of God in, a, in an acutely experiential way. And trials serve to do that in our lives. We learn of God experientially. Charles Spurgeon said this, I am certain that I never did grow in grace one half so much anywhere as I have upon the bed of pain. Selah. Also, trials serve to test our faith. They serve to test our faith. James says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. This word test in the Greek literally means to investigate. It means to find out something. And there's nothing like a good old trial that investigates us and it helps to find out what we're really made of. To find out how close we are with Christ. To find out how sanctified we are. To test our faith, to find out our faith, to see how real our faith truly is. Trials serve to do that. They test our faith. And we know this. How do we know this? We know this by study. We know this by saturating our minds with the Word of God. Study to show yourself approved unto God. It's easy to be faithful to God when things are good. You know, when, when we're, our bodies are healthy and there's plenty of money in the bank, oh, it's easy to be faithful to God. But wait till you go through a real trial, a real severe trial. And that will serve to investigate you, to find you out, to test your faith. Testing was very familiar to these Jewish believers. They were familiar with testing. Uh, the Abraham was tested. He was a prime example of passing that test. And you talk about a test that Abraham went through. Take your son Isaac up and sacrifice him. I can't imagine a more severe test than that. You talk about a trial. Talk about a test. And that found him out, didn't it? It investigated how faithful he really was to God. And he passed that test. And the Israelites... Wandering around in the wilderness, for example, did not pass that test. So tests find us out. A true Christian will be driven to his knees when he goes through a severe trial. Trials bring us as believers face to face with our own frailties. It's been said that true spiritual growth is a growth downward. True spiritual growth is a growth downward. It is only when we have a lower view of ourselves that we will have a higher view of God. There is an inverse relationship in how we view ourselves and how we view God. The more we think of ourselves, 
the less we will think of God. But the more we realize how frail we really are, how weak we really are, the higher we will view God. Trials also serve to burn up false professions of faith. They burn up false professions of faith. Not to, uh, not to pick on Joel Osteen, but to pick on Joel Osteen. <laughs> Lakewood Church, and I say that in the very loosest sense of the term because it's not a real church by the biblical definition, but Lakewood Church is the largest, or in the top three anyway, largest church in the United States of America. But there's no theology in that church of suffering. There's no theology, period, but there's no, no theology of suffering. And when real persecution does come to this country, Lakewood Church will go from the largest church in the country to a ghost town overnight. You will be able to hear a pin drop on Sunday morning, Lakewood Church, when real persecution does come to us in this country. Trials will burn up false professions of faith. Jesus says in John chapter 8, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. First John two nineteen. they went out from us. Why? Because they were not really of us. They went out from us because they were not really of us. Trials burn up false professions of faith. This is the, the rocky soil of which Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 13. Oh, initially there's some signs of life. Initially there's a little evidence that maybe something may be going on spiritually, but as soon as the sun comes out and it beats down and it scorches, those initial signs of life wilt away quickly because there's no depth of soil. There's no good soil there. It's the rocky soil that bears no lasting fruit. The seed is scorched and withered because they're not grounded in the word of God. You see this so often in, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and I saw this all the time, even though at the time I myself was not converted, thought I was, but I wasn't. But you see false professions of faith all the time. I mean, every summer the, when we were in the youth group, we would go off to, you know, somewhere for a week or so during the summer, and we'd have, you know, youth group, youth trip, and we'd go to, I don't know, Florida or wherever and spend a few days, and, you know, there would be some evangelist come in and he would preach at night and there would be a lot of music and everybody get all emotional and they cry and slobber all over one another and every you know and then they come back and come back home and everybody's just on fire for the lord and then the very next sunday it's all gone it's all gone and you see people walk the aisle all the time at revival meetings and all this stuff and and the next week the fbi couldn't find them because there's there's no depth there it's just emotionalism. Trials serve to find those things out. Not real. Now I want us to look at our response to trials. How should we, as Christians, respond to trials in our life? We'll look at what James says. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren. Consider it all joy. Count it as joy. Now, let me say, like we said with Romans 8.28, first, what this does not mean. When James says count it as joy, he does not mean enjoy your trials. That's not what he says. Trials are not meant to be enjoyed. 
That's why they're called trials. They're not enjoyable. And so please, dear one, please don't ever think that if you're going through some trial right now, whatever it is, some severe trial, and you're not enjoying it, please don't think that there is something wrong with your walk with Christ because you're not enjoying your trial. You're not supposed to enjoy your trial. If you were enjoying it, it wouldn't be a trial. So don't, don't fall into this hyper-spiritual trap that if you're not enjoying the trial that you're going through, that there's something wrong with you. No, you're not supposed to enjoy your trials. Trials are not meant to be enjoyed. Um, I guess one of the things that people most notice, you know, with me, I, I have cerebral palsy. I walk with crutches. Uh, is that a trial in my life? Yes, it's a trial in my life. Uh, do I enjoy it? Let me say that I'm, I'm used, I was born this way, so I've never known anything different. So it, it's not something that I think about a lot. But to be honest, I mean, yeah, there are days when I just don't feel like being crippled. You know, I, there are days I wish I wasn't. So I don't enjoy my cerebral palsy. It's not, it's not fun. I don't enjoy it. And I'm not going to have this hyper-spiritual air and say, oh, it never gets to me. And it's not enjoyable. But I can count it as joy. I can count it as joy because I know who God is. And I know that God cannot act towards me in any way that is outside of his character and his nature. Not that he won't, he can't. God cannot act towards me in any way that is incongruent with his nature. And so I know because God is sovereign and I know that he is good and he is faithful and he is kind and he is merciful and he is just. If, By the way, if you've never done a study of God's attributes, do yourself a favor and do a study on the attributes of God. I know he cannot act towards me outside of his character and his nature. I know because he is kind that he has my best interest at heart and ultimately his glory. I know because he is faithful, he will never leave me nor forsake me. I know because he's just that I actually deserve far, far, far worse. Anything short of hell is the mercy of God. And so even though it's not enjoyable, I can count it as joy. And I mean, it's just one example. There's so many trials in our lives. We're not supposed to enjoy them, but we can count them as joy. James didn't say feel them as joy. He said count them as joy. This is an, an accounting term. You can, you can take it to the bank. There will be joy in the midst of the trial and there certainly will be joy on the other side of the trial look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 8 through 10 I love what Paul says here 2 Corinthians 4 verses 8 through 10 Paul says we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck 
down, but were not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. The Apostle Paul went through these trials and they were so severe that he got right to the brink. Right to the brink. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. Perplexed, but we don't despair. Persecuted, but we know we're not forsaken. Struck down, but we're not destroyed. Have you ever heard someone say, Oh, I'm just too blessed to be stressed. What a stupid thing to say. The Apostle Paul was stressed. Read it. He got right up to the brink. Asaph was stressed. My feet came close to stumbling. My steps almost slipped. John the Baptist was stressed. Remember, he found himself in the prison cell, just about ready to have his head cut off. And Jesus' earthly ministry was not turning out the way that he thought it was or should have been. And so John sent a question to Jesus via his disciples, and the question was this to Christ. Are you the Messiah? Or should we be looking for someone else? This was John the Baptist. He baptized Jesus. Are you the Messiah? John the Baptist's trial got so severe, he wavered. The Apostle Paul, his trials were so severe, wavered. Asaph, the trial that he went through in Psalm 73, so severe, he wavered. His feet came close to stumbling. His Steps almost slipped. And it was, dear friends, it's, it's like that as believers, as children of God, sometimes the trials in our life can be so severe that we get right up to the brink. Right up to the brink where our feet almost slip and our steps come close to stumbling. We get right up to the brink and we peer off into the abyss. But God... Asaph goes on to say in verse 17, he says, this was the case until, until he said, I came into the sanctuary of God. Until he came into the sanctuary of God, until God granted him his own, God's perspective on his trial. Until he came into the sanctuary of God and then everything changed. Sometimes our trials will be so severe we get right up to the brink of the abyss, the cliff, and we stare off into the abyss of apostasy even. But God reaches out with his strong arm and he pulls us back from the brink. Sometimes our trials can be that severe. But Christian, know that no matter how severe your trial is, God will not let your feet slip. He will pull you back. As he pulled Asaph back. As he pulled the Apostle Paul back. Trials can be very severe. Be ready for them. 
Don't go into a trial unprepared. As I said a moment ago, if you've never done a study on the attributes of God, please do yourself a favor and study God's attributes. The more you know someone, the more you can trust that person. The more you know of God, the more you will trust Him. First Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 7. Peter says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all of your anxiety upon Him, for He cares for you for he cares for you um i've always had ever since a little boy a a bit of an interest in astronomy and i know you've probably heard some sermons that throw out some of these numbers uh but if you'll indulge me the mass of this earth is 6.6 sextillion tons 6.6 sextillion tons do you know how much that is I don't either. I don't have the, that, that is a meaningless number to me. I don't even know how many zeros that is. But that's the mass of the earth. And as massive as this earth is, we could fit 1.3 million earths inside of our sun. 1.3 million earths inside of the sun. And our sun is just an average size star. There's some smaller, there's some bigger. In fact, there's some a lot bigger. There's a star named Canis Majoris, and as best we can tell, we think that we could fit 9.3 billion suns inside this one star named Canis Majoris. 1.3 million Earths inside the sun, 9.3 billion suns inside this one star named Canis Majoris. That's just one star. And there are Billions upon billions of stars in our own Milky Way galaxy. How many galaxies are there? We don't know. Speculations, one, two trillion, maybe. I mean, the the human mind cannot, our, our circuit breakers trip, right? We can't comprehend. I say all that to say this. In 1 Peter 5, 7, this phrase in the Greek, cast all your anxiety upon him because... He cares for you. He cares for you. The way that that is literally rendered in the Greek is this. It matters to him about you. It matters to him about you. The one who spoke the universe into existence. The size of which we can't even begin to comprehend. It matters to him about you. Selah. Whatever it is that you are going through, Christian, my brother, my sister in Christ, this great God who spoke stars into existence, it matters to him about you. What a great God we serve. James says in verse 4, And let endurance have its perfect result, 
I want us to look at this word endurance. Trials produce endurance. Trials produce endurance in us. And this word endurance in the Greek is the word hupomene. And hupomene literally means hupa underneath mene from the Greek word meno, which means to remain. So literally, it means to remain underneath. To remain underneath. Dear ones, there is nothing wrong with praying for God to remove a trial. The Apostle Paul prayed that Christ would remove his trial, 2 Corinthians 12, the thorn in the flesh. But Jesus did not remove that trial. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for strength is made perfect in weakness. Oftentimes, God does not remove our trials, but he does give us his sufficient grace to hupamane through the trial, to remain underneath. He sustains us in and through our trials. It's the same word used in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12, when it says, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, who pomenade the cross. God did not remove the cross, but in ways that we cannot understand, Christ was sustained in the midst of that cross. Even as the wrath of God was being poured out on him, he was being sustained in that time. God does not remove our trials more oftentimes than not, but he does give us the grace to sustain us through the trial. Um, growing up, again, in a Southern Baptist church, I, I can remember every Wednesday night, we would have prayer meeting, you know, services on Sunday, but then Wednesday night, midweek service, we'd have prayer meeting, and, and we would have, we'd start with a meal, and um, then after we ate, then the pastor would get up and, you know, ask for prayer requests and that kind of thing, and and at a prayer meeting, when any time you go to a church, evangelical church, and the, the leader, the pastor, whatever, asks for prayer requests, what are 99 out of 100 of the prayer requests for? Someone's sick, right? Someone's sick, someone's in the hospital, someone has cancer, someone has surgery. And dear ones, please know that I am not against at all. I'm not against praying that God would be gracious and, and remove sickness and heal someone. I'm not against those things at all. But maybe instead of spending all of our time, Lord, remove this trial, maybe we should spend more time, Lord, Grow me in this trial. Conform me more into the image of your son through this trial. And may I honor Christ in the midst of it. Maybe we should spend more time praying for things like that. Because trials are intended to have their perfect, James says, their perfect Result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the fruit of trials. When James says perfect, this does not mean sinless perfection. None of us will ever attain sinless perfection this side of heaven. Salvation is not perfection, it is direction. Which direction is your life going? The longer we live as Christians, the more we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be growing in holiness. There should be a decreasing pattern of sin and an increasing pattern of holiness in our lives. It's not perfection. We stumble. 
into sin as Christians, though we just don't swim in it. It's not perfection, it is direction. God in Christ has equipped us with everything that we need to face and to endure trials. We are perfectly equipped to go through the trials of our life. We have been saved. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the triune Godhead. We have God's word. The Holy Spirit of God illumines the meaning of God's word to our hearts and to our minds. He sanctifies us. We are perfectly equipped. We have the fellowship of the saints. We have our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are to bear one another's burdens. We are perfectly equipped, fully equipped to go through these trials. Let endurance have its perfect result. We have the fellowship of the brethren. We have been adopted into God's family. And even if your faith in Christ has caused alienation between you and members of your own family, dear one, when you became a Christian, when God saved you, he adopted you into a much greater family, the family of God. And you have millions upon millions upon millions of brothers and sisters all around this world. And oftentimes, the closest, most meaningful relationships we have are not members with our, with our blood family. If they're not believers, it won't be. Oftentimes, it will be members of the body of Christ. We are fully equipped. Let endurance have its perfect result. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, 6 and 7, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, that is the purpose of our trials, that they are to result in the praise and honor and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that God does, he does for his glory. Our salvation, yes, we are the beneficiaries, but ultimately our salvation is not even for us. Ultimately our salvation is for God because it brings glory to him. Our salvation results in the praise and honor and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, Paul says, For to you it has been granted not only to believe in him, in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. Put that verse in your prosperity pipe and smoke it. For to you it has not only been granted to believe in Christ, our faith in and of itself is a gift from God. It is granted to us, but so is suffering. It's a privilege. It is a privilege. It is something that has been granted to us. How many times do we think of suffering as a privilege? Something granted to us by the kind hand of God. But it is, dear one. Because our suffering, our trials, are opportunities for us to become more conformed in the image of Christ. They are opportunities for us to represent Christ well. And through the suffering, through the trial, through the persecution, through the sickness, whatever form it may take, 
We speak well of God. We speak well of Christ. We honor him by our words and our deeds. We point other people to him. And God is honored in that. Christ is honored in that. And ultimately, ultimately, that is the purpose of our trials. To bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. As I conclude, I just want to ask, do you know this great God? Do you know the one who spoke the universe into existence? Do you know the one who came to this earth, fully God, fully man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who never broke any of God's laws, willingly laid down his life on the cross, fully bore the wrath of God so that you and I would not have to. Jesus gave his perfect life as a perfect sacrifice to perfectly satisfy the perfect wrath of God. Died on the cross three days later, bodily raised from the dead, proving himself to be who he said he was, God in human flesh. The only way to be saved, to have the wrath of God removed that your sins have earned you, is to repent of sin and place your trust in Jesus Christ. Your works will not save you. They are filthy rags. Lay your works down. They will profit you nothing. The work of Christ will profit you everything. Repent of sin. Place your trust in him. And he will save you. If you come to Christ in a true godly sorrow over sin, you will pass from death to life. 